0: Yes, He does. And that's why we worship. That's why we celebrate. That's why we come together on Sunday morning. Because our God does save. This is His day. Set aside because of His resurrection. He has called us into His presence. Invited us to worship Him. And so we're going to. If you brought a Bible this morning, I want you to take it and turn to the Gospel of Matthew. The 16th chapter. We're going to look once more at our Lord Jesus Christ. We've been taking some snapshots, if you will, into the life and ministry of Jesus, and we've been working our way through his journey to Jerusalem, the final trip that he took as he was preparing to go to the cross. This morning, it's kind of a step back. He said, What do you mean a step back? Okay, let's just let's put these messages into the context, if you will, of a movie script. All right? We've been on this journey to Jerusalem. Last week we were in Jericho, and while we were there in Jericho, we had several encounters. We had encountered a couple of blind individuals that Jesus gave sight to, and, and then last Sunday morning we looked at his encounter with a man by the name of Zacchaeus. While all of these things were going on, his disciples were watching, they were listening, and they were thinking to themselves about what Jesus was doing. Who was he that he could do these amazing things? And maybe their thoughts drifted back to several months before, before this journey south had begun. When Jesus had taken his disciples on, I don't know what else to call it, a men's retreat. All right? They had gone to a place called Caesarea Philippi. It was a well-known place up north, north of the Sea of Galilee and not too far from Mount Hermon. And, and the, the water that flows through Caesarea Philippi is snowmelt off of that mountain. And while they were there, they had a conversation. And Jesus asked his friends about a very general question about what people were saying about him. And, you know, be honest, Jesus already knew what people were saying about him. And I really don't think he was that concerned about what people were saying about him. But by asking that question, it set the conversation up for Jesus to ask his disciples But who do you think I am? And out of that moment came one of the greatest confessions, professions of faith that has ever been recorded. That's what I want us to read about this morning. And so if you've got your Bible with you, look with me. Matthew chapter 16. Find verse 13. We're going to read together a few verses here as we begin to consider this conversation. And I want you to see with me this morning another snapshot of Jesus. Jesus, the church builder. He is the one who has built the church. Not we, not anybody, not any man. Jesus Christ is the church builder. And that's what I want us to see as we look into the word of God this morning. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. If you've got that, if you have your Bible open and can, will, I want to invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's holy word. Matthew records the event for us like this. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Father, this morning I thank you for your word and I pray that you would bless its reading. As we spend these moments together, speak to our hearts. Teach us your truth. Even as you taught those twelve so long ago, I pray you reveal truth to us. Challenge us. Change our hearts. Convict us of sin. Call us to follow you, to walk near to you, and to grow in our faith and understanding of you. Father, be glorified in this time. Have your way. For we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. If you're anything like me, you read this passage and you find yourself out there in the middle of it saying, well, surprise, surprise. Simon Peter's the first one to speak up. Peter had a habit of speaking up. Whether he had the right answer or not sometimes was inconsequential, but this time he absolutely unquestionably had the correct answer to the question that Jesus posed. But who do you think I am? And Jesus told him, Peter, you didn't get this out of your own understanding. You didn't get this from the conversation you guys have been having. I I know what y'all are talking about behind my back. You didn't get this out of those conversations. You didn't get this because someone else told you this or taught you this. This has been revealed to you by my Father. That's where this truth comes from. And then Jesus used Simon Peter's answer as the starting point of his instruction. Now, if you want to look inside this retreat with me, I want to spend a few moments within this text and see what it was that Jesus needed for them to understand. Please grasp this. What happened at Caesarea Philippi was the master preparing his men to carry on the work after he departed. He's readying them for kingdom ministry When the king of the kingdom has assumed his throne and is no longer walking with them. What did they need to learn? What did they need to know? Well, it's simple. Let's walk through it together. First off, they needed to know the church is one foundation. There is only one foundation. And Peter identified that foundation. It's Jesus. Understand, there was a lot of speculation among the crowds about who Jesus was. That's, that's why he asked that first question. Who do people say that I am? What are you hearing the crowds? Whenever we're out there and, and they're crowded around for the miracles, for the teaching, for the feeding, what do you hear them saying? Oh, it, it's all over the place, Lord. They're, they're talking about the second coming of John the Baptist. They're talking about Elijah. They're talking about different prophets and saying that maybe, maybe you're the reincarnation. But in the midst of all of that, he asked that question, then, who do you think I am? Now, I want you to notice something very carefully with me, all right? Got your Bible open. I want you to take a look back into this text. In verse 13, Jesus had asked the question Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Speaking of himself. But I want you to see, in contrast to that, the response that Peter gives in verse 16. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So we've moved from the Son of Man to the Christ, the Son of the living God. The word Christ means Messiah or anointed one. Now, all of Israel had been waiting for the Christ. They had been waiting for the anointed one, the one who would be sent from God. And here's Peter saying, you know, you're him, but you're more than just the one sent from God. You're the son of God. You you are God in flesh. Peter identifies Jesus as being more than anybody else. Look back at the answers that had been given by the people. Who do people say that I am? Look back at those answers. No one there said he's Messiah. No one there said he was Christ. No one there said he's the, the, the one sent from God. No one said he is God. But that's how Peter identified him. That's the reason Jesus said, you've been given an insight. You've received a revelation that's beyond what anybody else understands. Now, I know some of y'all are probably sitting there saying, what's he getting so wound up about? This is no big deal. This is a huge deal, folks. How do I say this? At the time Jesus was living in Judaism, there was a lot of varied opinion, different thoughts about who Messiah would be, what this one sent from the Father would look like what he would do what he would I mean okay y'all are looking at me like you don't get it let me help you get it when you start talking to people today I'm assuming you talk to people aren't there varied opinions or different interpretations of scripture about the second coming of Christ or about the rapture or about how we identify who Jesus is are y'all breathing okay you know, when I get in a conversation with people, I discover a lot of folks interpret Scripture differently than I do, or they've been taught different understandings of Scripture than what I've been taught. So even though there are a lot of variations of what people believe about who Jesus is or when he will come again or what's going to happen before or after his second coming or all of these different, the same kind of thing was happening in Judaism. People had different interpretations of what the prophets had written. They had different understandings of what that meant and, and who this coming son of man, the suffering servant, who was he going to be? What this was going to look like? Is he going to be a religious rabbi? Is he going to be a political king? and Who is he going to be? And that's the reason you have this wide variety of answers that are being given. And here's Peter's answer, and his conviction is clear. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's a marvelous confession. In fact, it was so powerful, it was so powerful that Jesus said, I'm going to build my church on that statement, on that statement of fact. And somebody out there right now is saying, oh, preacher, you just stepped in it. Because, you see, this is where we have such a division of understanding. People read this particular passage right here. And this is where it starts, verse 18. I also say to you that you're Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Oh my goodness. What is it that Jesus is going to build his church on? I'm going to tell you exactly what it is. It is the stated fact of verse 16 that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. A lot of folks have a different understanding as to the meaning of Jesus' words, and I'm going to be the first to tell you, yes, there is a word play in the Greek language that's taking place here, all right? Whenever you read this and, and you see what, what Jesus says in verse 18, you are Peter, the word is Petros, it's a small rock. When I, when I say a small rock, it, you know, it, it, go out by the pond. If you can find a rock that you can pick up, it's fist-sized, that's Petros. That's what a Petros is. That's what Peter is. Now understand, that's a rock I can pick up. That's a rock I can grip. That's a rock I can throw. I can move it. I can do all manner of things with it, good and bad. Mama always got me when I was throwing rocks. So I assume there's more bad than good. But, you know, if you can pick up that rock and you can handle it, and you can throw it, you can move it. But in verse 18, he goes a step further and he says, Upon this rock... The word here is not Petros, it's Petra. What's that mean? Solid rock, bedrock, massive slab of stone, immovable. So what Jesus is saying is, you're Peter, the rock that can be moved. But upon what you've just said, this rock, this statement, this immovable statement of faith that I am the Christ. Upon that, I will build my church. It cannot be moved. What is this immovable rock? What did Peter mean when he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God? Let Let me... Let me simplify this. Here's what he was saying. You are Jesus' full deity. You are equal to the Father. You are God in flesh. He was saying basically what I tell you on such a regular basis. You were born of a virgin. You have lived a perfect and sinless life. You have a unique nature that is fully God and fully man. He didn't go on and finish it the way that I would. You're going to go to the cross. And when you go to that cross and you lay down your life, you are going to pay the price for my sin and the sin of all mankind. You are our redemption. You are our atonement. You are our Savior. But you're not going to stay dead. After three days, you're going to rise again. And after you rise again and you're seen by so many of us to prove the fact of who you are and everything I've just said you are, you're going to ascend into the heavens and be seated on the throne at the right hand of majesty. And there you will intercede for your followers every day throughout history. That's who Jesus is. That's what Peter was getting at. He just didn't know the finish of the story yet. But can I tell you something? The church is built upon this truth. If any congregation minimizes this truth, they are compromised. If any denomination minimizes this truth, they are compromised. And if they are compromised, the work and the service and the ministry that they are doing or trying to do is minimized and it is compromised as well. If the church falters on this truth, it is not long before the church begins to compromise in other areas of truth and morality and ethics and practice. And we see it all around us, brothers and sisters. It is important, it is important that every believer, every church leader, every person who sits in the seats embrace this fundamental truth about Jesus. He is without question the Son of the living God. He is Messiah. Don't ever turn your back on that truth. Because when you do, you have taken a dangerous stand from which there is virtually no return short of a mighty, powerful, and sometimes painful encounter with God. That's the first truth that Jesus taught on this retreat. The church is one foundation. He looked at them. He didn't have to say it, they said it. But here it is I'm it. Now as I'm reading this and I'm I'm listening to what Jesus is teaching there's something that always catches my attention and it's caught the attention of a lot of people because I've had to have discussions about this with so many different people through the years who want to tell me how Scripture just simply can't be correct. And it always revolves back to a question. And the question is What is this church that Jesus spoke of? Now now preachers tell you that the church began the day of Pentecost. When the Spirit of God fell upon the gathered believers who were in the upper room and they were filled with the Spirit of God and went out into the streets and began to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And people were saved and the church was formed and it began. So how is it if the church started at Pentecost... That we have Jesus in Matthew 16 telling Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church. What is this church that Jesus is talking about? Let me explain to you. Jesus gave a new twist to an old word. All right? The word translated church here comes from the Greek word ekklesia. Literally, it means the called out assembly. So we're talking about the called out ones who have assembled. That's the literal meaning of this word church. It's an old concept. You say, what do you mean by that? If you go back and look in Deuteronomy chapter 4, and I'm not asking you to turn there, I'm just telling you what it says, okay? But in Deuteronomy chapter 4 in verse 10 It talks about how God told the leaders of Israel, Call my people out and assemble them so that I might instruct them, teach them. Now understand, the Greek language and the Hebrew language are not the same. Nor do they always parallel. But the same concept is at play. God calls people apart. He gathers them, assembles them, so that he can teach them and instruct them. And that's what this church is. It's, let's start at the beginning, it's the called out ones. Born-again believers... Those who have been confronted by the Spirit of God and convicted of their sin, recognizing their sin, they realize they need a Savior, understanding that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that He is that Savior, they have cried out to Him in confession and repentance, turning, surrendering, and allowing Him to become the Lord of their lives. They are now the called out ones. And they are assembled together. Please understand that as Jesus spoke of the church, there were no buildings, there were no organizations, there were no denominations, it was people. It wasn't until later that people began to gather together in local congregations and, and constituted assemblies that resemble what we know today as churches. And and at that point, we begin to read in the New Testament about the church at Corinth, or the church at Ephesus, or the churches in Galatia, or the church at Philippi. Talking about those local representations of the congregation. The visible bodies consisting of born-again individuals. And that's the ideal for our churches today. That someone who comes to be a part of the body of Christ should have experienced a conversion experience. They should have been born again through faith in Jesus Christ. If they've not done that, they do not belong inside the body of Christ. Much tragedy and much travesty has been wrought inside of churches across the land and around the world by people being embraced into the body of Christ who were never born into the body of Christ. Now some people have tried to tell me, well, the church as it is today is not biblical. But there are places in the New Testament where the church is spoken of in a general institutional sense rather than a local body. So please understand, when we talk about church, there are two manifestations. Now, I'm about to say something, and before anybody mutes me or gets offended, please stay with me to the end of the comment, all right? There is the church, Catholic, little c. That means universal. That means every born-again believer in every country at every time. That's what the Lord is talking about when he talks about what the church is going to look like when they gather before him, before the throne in eternity. When they're going to be people of every nation and every tongue and every tribe. I want you to know something. There are going to be folks there that aren't Southern Baptists. There are going to be people there who aren't Methodist, who aren't Presbyterian, who aren't Episcopalian, who aren't anything that we even recognize. But they will worship Jesus Christ as Lord of Lords, as King of Kings, as a Savior of their lives and their hearts. That is the church, Catholic, universal in its sense. But there is also a time when the church is written to and spoken of in the New Testament where it definitely is talking about a local body of believers who gather in a place Now please understand, the words called out signify those who comprise Christ's church. What do you mean called out? They're different from the world around them. They've been born again. Their hearts have been changed. They have different desires. They have different drives. They have a different owner. They have different master in their life than what the world has. The concept of of the faith being, those called out ones being assembled, gives an indication of how we should function and, and how we should fellowship and how we should live out our faith together, assembled. I've told you many, many times, we are better together than we are apart. We need each other. We need accountability We need fellowship. We need brothers and sisters who challenge us to step up our game, to go further, to give more, to serve better, to be more engaged than what we would ever be if we were left to our own devices just to figure it out on our own. So when you hear someone talking about the church, please do not think about a building. The New Testament gives us no concept of the church as a building. We don't know anything about where, the, you know, the only thing we know about church buildings in the New Testament, and I'm not even going to say it was a church building, it was just where the church met, but I think it's a great lesson to be learned for the New Testament church that functions today in the 21st century. Don't build church buildings with upstairs windows for young people to climb into and sit in while the preacher's preaching. Because in the book of Acts, we read of a young man who fell asleep while Paul was preaching and fell out to his death. But thankfully, he was given back his life. Don't think it's always going to happen if you go to sleep, guys. You're not always going to get a second chance, all right? That's the only thing we know. Other than that, it never says anything about a building. It talks about a people. So when we talk about this church, we're not talking about a building. We're not talking about a place. We're talking about a people. But there's another thing I want you to see before we leave this passage this morning. And I think it is so incredibly important because I believe it's part of what drives us, it's part of what encourages us, it's part of what gives us the impetus to go forward, to move on. We understand the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, our Lord. We understand what this church is that Jesus was speaking of. He was talking about those who would be born again into the kingdom of God, called out when they assembled together for work and for fellowship and for ministry. But if you find yourself feeling discouraged, I want to be sure that you notice Jesus' promise to his church. Notice His promise. Jesus gave an incredibly encouraging promise to his people. He says here in verse 18, the last part of this verse, speaking to the church, of the church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Whether you use the word Hades, the word hell, the word Sheol, the place of death, the kingdom of our enemy. Will not overpower the church of Jesus Christ. What Jesus was promising takes a multitude of expressions. First off, let me tell you this the church will not be destroyed. The world may come against the church. Satan may launch all of his powers against the church. We may face persecution. We may face death. We may face martyrdom. We may be opposed by political systems. We may be opposed by people we work with, people we go to school with, people we meet on the streets. We may face opposition in a multitude of ways, a multitude of places from a multitude of enemies. But I want you to understand the church of Jesus Christ will remain until he returns and calls his bride home but there's another message that we must not miss it's simple it's easy it's not earth shattering it's not new but I want you to look at it again and the gates of Hades will not overpower it did you catch the perspective You military guys, you caught the lay of the land here, didn't you? He did not say that the infantry and the artillery and the naval forces and the air power of our enemy will not storm the church. That's not what he said. He said the gates of Hades will not overpower it. You see, here's the reality of what Jesus is saying. We are to be on the offensive. We are to be storming the gates, attacking the walls... We're not sitting back under attack. We're not sitting back seeing if we can withstand, if we can withhold. No, we are attacking the gates. We are storming the fortresses of our enemy. The church is marching under the orders of Christ Jesus. And our combined forces will always be greater and stronger than the combined forces of evil that come against us. Understanding that message, understanding its meaning, we ought to realize that we are the most powerful people on the face of the earth today. So lift your head up. Stop thinking you're beaten or defeated or that the world is too tough or too mean or too overpowering. It is not. We serve a victorious Savior. He cannot be. He will not be defeated now or ever. Church, we have a job. Our job is to storm the gates of hell. To steal as many people from the enemy as we can. His desire is to drag them into hell and eternally damn them. Our master's desire is to redeem them, restore them, renew them, and keep them in eternal glory with him forever. Charles Spurgeon made a statement, something to the extent that there will always be those who are going to go and choose to go to hell but if they go, they should go with us hanging on to them by the knees as they drag us toward those gates. The reality is, my friends, that our Lord will not be defeated. And those whom He calls will respond. And I've told you all of this this morning simply to get to one question. Are you, A member of his church. Have you met Jesus in a life-transforming encounter? Have you surrendered your life, your heart, your soul, your sin to him? And so you need to be joined to a local body. You need to be investing your life in the work of Christ through his church in his kingdom. Don't, don't get bogged down in excuses. I Listen, I've heard them all. In 40 plus years in the ministry, I have heard every excuse you can possibly want to throw at me. So let me just tell you up front, no church is perfect. No pastor is perfect. Nowhere you go is the music going to meet your every fantasy. Nowhere that you go is every message going to make you feel good about yourself. By the way, it shouldn't. But don't get bogged down in that nonsense. Understand this truth. Your life is strengthened when you join yourself with other born-again believers in work and in fellowship and in discipleship and in service. Now let me say one more thing before I quit. Because I don't ever want to be misunderstood. Joining the church... Does not and will not save you. Jesus saves. End of story. But there is great value in being associated with and connected to other believers in fellowship and service, in worship and discipleship. As a pastor, I need you. I'll say, of course you do. You wouldn't have anybody to preach to if we weren't here. Preacher? No. I need you. You create accountability in my life. You give me encouragement. You remind me every week when I look out here and I think about the stories you've shared with me, I think about the experiences you've had, the times that we've... We've, we've, we've worshiped together, but there have been times when we've celebrated together. And there have been times when we've grieved together. And I realize, not only do I need you, but you need us. You need me. See, the church of Jesus Christ is the most amazing organism on earth. And I want you to notice, I said organism, not organization. Because we're not more than Organizations are lifeless things. The church is an organism. It is a living body. But the only way to be part of that living body is to be brought in by being born again through Jesus Christ. So let me make this simple. Are you part of the body? I'm not asking you if your name's on a church roll, I'm not asking you if you attend church regularly. I'm asking you, have you been born again through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and placing your faith in Him? Because that's the only way to be saved, to be born again, to be regenerated, to be redeemed. You can call it whatever you want to. That's how it happens. It's through Jesus. If you've not had that experience, I want you to know something. You may have your name on a church roll, and you may regularly attend a church. But when there comes a day when this life has come suddenly to its end, and I don't care who you are or how it comes, it's always sudden for those who experience it. And you find yourself standing before the throne of God, and he says to you, why should I let you into my kingdom? In an instant, you'll discover there's one answer and one answer only that is acceptable. And that is when you can point to his side to the one you will know whether you've ever seen him or not. And you can point to that one and say, he is Lord. If you've not had that experience and you couldn't do that, this morning I want to invite you to call on Jesus. You might say, I, I, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do that. I don't know what to say. That's why in a moment after I've prayed, we're going to stand and sing. I'm going to be right down here. If you'll come and take me by the hand and say, Preacher, I need that relationship. I need a Savior. I won't embarrass you or put you on the spot, but I would love to share with you today how you can become a child of God. Maybe you're here. You say, "I've, I've had that experience. I'm your brother. I'm your sister. Awesome. That's the most important thing in life. Well, let me ask you a couple more questions. Have you followed him in believers' baptism? See, that's just a step of obedience. Do you need to take that step? Have you connected yourself to a body of believers where you can fellowship and serve and be a part of the body of Christ? Maybe you need to take care of some of these details so that your life can become all that the master wants it to be. How can I help you do that? I know a lot of churches have quit giving an invitation. It's kind of fallen out of favor. I want you to know something. I'll never quit. It's not because I like to extend a service, but it's really simple. What's the point in hearing the Word of God? What's the point in inviting people to hear the voice of the Spirit of God if you're not going to give people an opportunity to respond to what they hear? That's why we're doing what we do. Because I want you to respond. I want you to commit. I want you to say, here today, I'm going to put a stake in the ground and say, from this point forward, Jesus is in charge. And I will never, never be the same again. Stake ready? The ground is here. Let's bow our heads together. In just a moment, we're going to stand together and sing that song of invitation. It's just an opportunity to commit yourself as God has called you and led you today. Perhaps, perhaps today is that day where you say, you know what? I need to put my stake in the ground. I know I'm saved. I know I'm born again. I know I belong to Jesus, but I've never confessed that publicly. I need to put my stake in the ground. I need to let it be known that I belong to him. I did that a long time ago, but I've never followed the Lord in baptism. I've never surrendered. I've never followed and been obedient. Does it matter? Yeah. If it didn't matter, Jesus wouldn't have told his church, go make disciples and baptize them. It's an act of obedience. It identifies us with our Lord, and it identifies us with other brothers and sisters who have already walked this course. Maybe today's the day. Maybe you're here looking for a church home. You feel like God has led you to this place. You need to be a part. Let's figure out what needs to happen. But Whatever it is that God is speaking to your heart, however it is that he might be leading you, I just ask you, hear his voice be obedient. Father, I thank you this morning for your word. And I thank you for the one sure foundation that the church has in Jesus Christ. That unmovable, unshakable rock that will never be taken, will never be removed, can never be torn down. But Father, now it's time for us to respond to your call. And perhaps there are some in this place who for the first time in their lives, in their heart and mind, they are thinking and they are saying right now, He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I pray, Father, that you would take that confession And you would turn it into a profession of faith. That they would follow you. That they would put a stake in the ground and say, from now on, Jesus is Lord in my life. Father, there are brothers and sisters who are struggling. Struggling with following. Struggling with obedience. Struggling with surrender. I pray that today you would overcome the struggles. Break down those barriers. And allow us to become people whose lives glorify and honor the name of Jesus. Father, you've spoken through your word. I believe you're speaking through the moving of your spirit. So I pray right now, give us ears to hear. Give us open hearts. And give us a will that is submissive to your call. Whatever you desire to do, Father, do it for your glory and honor. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.